welcome back to the Casting Light Podcast. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. We're on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Instagram at podcastinglight, we tweet at podcastinglight, and you can find us on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Christopher Robinson. He is a production electrician, head electrician. Uh, He is also the associate production electrician on Hamilton the Musical, and that has taken him all over the world. He is also a lighting designer and programmer with his own company, Revolutionary Lighting. And I think I'll let him tell you the rest. Let's welcome Chris Robinson. Hey, Jason. Good to see you, buddy. Likewise. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This uh, This is wonderful. So I know you speak to me as we sit in lockdown. Where are you? Where do you live? Uh, I live in Brooklyn. I live in Williamsburg, just off the L train. It's been interesting to say the least, actually. I mean, I know a lot of friends, colleagues, um, stagehands, electricians, Broadway actors that have had COVID. Not only had it, but had it pretty severely and are still feeling the effects afterwards as well. Um, So we don't really know the long-term effects of this virus and what to expect. Actually, I have three children as well. They're 13, 12, and 9 years old. And they're awesome. Oh, thank you. So, you know, they're talking about opening schools again in September, but limited three days a week. But you have the option to homeschool, which obviously I'm not really working right now because uh, all live performances are, you know, suspended indefinitely. So I'm definitely going to not send them back to school, at least at first. My son especially really wants to get back, especially they're all in the band program. They're in the concert band program at this IS-318 here in Brooklyn, which coincidentally is the same middle school that Jay-Z went to near the uh-huh. Marshall Projects. But it has the best band program in the entire five boroughs for middle school, apparently, which I had no idea. And they love it. So if there's a way they can return to school safely and still do band, I would probably send them a band. But other than that, I'm just going to kind of see how that whole thing goes. So that's that's what you're up to now. Can you tell me a little bit about what you were up to before this all started? Like, what was your place in the business as of the beginning of March? As of the beginning of March, things were great. I could paint a nice rosy picture of I was taking a break from running Hamilton, New York full time. I run the lighting console there. And I'm also the associate production electrician for all the out of town productions as well. So I had just gone to L.A., actually, to set up the L.A. version of Hamilton. And we were just one day away from having an audience when all of this started to hit. Like, you remember that week in March, like I wasn't in New York. So and I had been in L.A. for several weeks at that point. But, you know, you'd hear things in the news like, oh, here's another case in the U.S. And here's another case. And then the next thing you know, I hear there's an usher that's sick at the Brooks Atkinson Theater, which is one block away from the Richard Rogers, on, you know, 46th Street. So that's when, like, alarm bells are going off in my head. Like, oh, no, this is real. Like, this is hitting very close to home. And at the time, I had my sister watching my kids. She had flown in from Georgia. And like later that day, I'm just, you know, talking with everyone backstage and the production crew, like the production carpenter, our production manager, like, uh, looks like things are getting serious. And then we hear word from Hamilton, San Francisco, San Francisco, the mayor just said that there's not going to be any more gatherings of 100 people or more. So which means basically, hence, Hamilton, San Francisco was canceled at that moment. And then... (laughs) You know, we're still in tech. We're about to do a, a run through. And then a few hours later, the NBA canceled their entire season. And that was the point where I went to management and said, all right, I think I need to take the next plane back to New York right now because this is getting very serious. And by the next day, everyone was booking flights back home. Uh, that was at least part of the production team. 
So everybody that was still um, part of the company in LA, you know, they all moved out there. They all moved from New York. They got signed year leases. So they were, they're probably, a lot of them are still out there just kind of waiting things out. Right after that, Leslie Odom Jr., who I am his lighting designer as well, he was about to go on tour with Mr., but I had to bow out at the last minute. He has a brand new album. I highly recommend it if you haven't heard it yet. Thanks. Thanks for the recommendation. It is so good. I mean, it's so, I mean, Leslie, I would consider a friend of mine, but it's just so nice. Like when your friend like makes this artwork that is just like magical, like it's something I would listen to regardless whether or not I knew him or not. So it's really a pleasure to to light something that you're so passionate about. It's basically how I even got into this industry, really just doing concert lighting and lighting, uh, you know, live music and in bars and clubs in Miami and Fort Lauderdale, like in 1999, 2000. Can you walk me through your beginnings and then how you ended up when I met you? It was because you were the head electrician on first date on Broadway back in 2013. Take me forward from there through 2013 and then on to Hamilton. You know, a lot, a lot of people I know, a lot of my colleagues, especially, they, they went to like you know college for musical theater and technical theater and, and all of these things. But um, that wasn't me. You know, I kind of left home when I was really young. I was 16 when I left home and uh, never looked back. And I was a bit of a troubled youth. And I eventually met some roadies by one way or another. And uh, I asked them like just to give me a job, some like local stagehands. And they're like, yeah. And where was that? This is in Miami. So this is 1999. And uh, yeah, they gave me a shot. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just like pushing boxes. And there wasn't really that many young people doing what I was doing. And if they did, it was they were usually brought in by like a father or an uncle or something like that. And the pay rate was garbage. And I just started working at the arena. So we're like a Miami arena. There's an arena at Sunrise. It's Pompano Beach Amphitheater working all the concert venues. And I got a call to work at a nightclub that was sort of there was a big venue i don't know how well you know venues in south florida especially in the 90s but there was one called sunrise musical theater Uh, i do not but i do know that in miami club is a very very different beast than it is here in new york definitely absolutely so there was a there was a brand new club that opened up i'm pretty sure by like mobsters from new york or something like that it was called orbit (laughs) They took they basically took this giant uh, what used to be a supermarket and a plaza and made it into just a, a nightclub. They just painted all the walls black. Uh, they, I don't know if they got some sort of sponsorship from Martin or anything, but they had a bunch of Martin light, moving lights in there, and uh, we had these light jockey. I kind of there was like a girl there who was like their LD, and I was kind of like making friends with her, and then you know she needed somebody to cover her, and she was kind of showing me how to program lights. And next thing you know, I'm programming lights at this concert venue. And when Sunrise Musical Theater closed, all the concerts that were supposed to go there, which were like medium-sized concerts, just went into this venue. And they were pretty massive. So at this point, I'm like trying to, I'm like, so that girl got fired. So they, I took over as the LD there. I'm getting sent riders at this point. I need to have like, you know, cam tie-ins for distros. And it's like, I'm trying to like reading things and doing research. Like, all right, what is all this stuff <laughs> they're asking me? And, uh, I read a lot of books about electricity and electronics and just, just fed my brain anything I could at that point to just, to know both like the technical aspects of the business and also, you know, program lights. And I thought it was fun because I was a musician and I thought like, oh, this seems like a fun gig that I could just do while before my music career takes off. Um, and it just seemed perfect because it felt like you're a part of the band, you know, in a way when you're just kind of like lighting with them because 
if you're just musically inclined, I feel I feel like the best lighting designers are usually pretty musically inclined. Isn't Mike Baldessari? Does not he play an instrument? Yeah, he was a drummer. Yeah, so that's how I got into it. So my initial introduction into the business was mostly programming lights. Like I didn't, I did was doing a lot more programming, like on Light Jockey, and like then I started learning whole hogs, and before I even started doing like basic electrician work, like even hanging Lico's. I remember I felt like so comfortable programming lights at a point. By the time I first like hung my first Lico, I had no idea how to hang it. <laughs> wow. I remember somebody like kind of like sitting me down like, all right, this is the way you want it to point. I was like, oh, okay, I got this. I mean, it's all simple, but you know, I worked basically every concert venue in South Florida and I climbed as high as I could. Um, I remember working at the Broward Center for the Performing Arts. The first time I worked there was in 1999 and that was the first union gig I had ever taken. And I remember thinking, like, the first thing they do there, because they don't have Teamsters, they put you on the truck. So I remember working on the truck as a truck loader and unloading trucks and thinking, like, oh, maybe one day they're going to let me on that stage <laughs> you know, and do something. Or, like, maybe they'll let me work with the lighting crew one day. Eventually they did. And I just sort of, like, shot my way up the ranks. I got a union card immediately in 2002. I worked my way up the ranks at the Broward Center. Um, I was getting a, like a lot of show calls there and some people weren't very happy about it because I was so young and like running a follow spot on these Broadway touring shows. And, uh, eventually they stopped calling me because there it's, there's call stewards that make the calls for the venues, not like the house heads like they do here in New York. So like the call stewards were putting, like people were complaining and they were making them more senior members get the first call. So I couldn't get into the Broward Center, even though everybody was requesting me, like the, the touring shows were requesting me, Miami City Ballet, Florida Grand Opera. And then all of a sudden I couldn't even get work. And I was like one of the most requested workers on there because of like these crazy union politics and seniority. And I get it. But a lot of these people just weren't really, didn't even know what they were doing when they were still getting seniority over me. So I decided to not do work with the union anymore for a while. And I got a job working for a company called Media Stage in South Florida, which is a wonderful company. Like there's still these people are still like my family. And they taught me how to like really take everything to the next level. They taught me vector works. They taught me how to program whole hogs. And, what were you doing for them? Um, I was like an LD. That's when I really learned the most. But then I got offered the assistant electrician job at the Broward Center, which is like one of the best jobs you could get as far as the union is concerned. And well, before you move on to there, a question for you is, so, you know, I understand how you learned to program. Um, how did you learn to design? Um, you had mentioned that you did a lot of reading to learn about electrics. You know, what were those resources you used to do all this learning you clearly had to do? Yeah, well, I mean... Designing for like cause this this media stage basically did mostly corporate events, so it was just like making sure you had a nice flat field on the stage, essentially, and then you had podium podium lights, and then it was just making a ballroom look really nice and sexy at that point. So it wasn't like designing a play and know, knowing all the nuances. You know, that's like a family-owned business. Uh, the, the owner, CEO Wilson Alaires, you know, he hires like some of a lot of his family members and everybody that's, that, that was working there then, and this is like 18 years ago, it's like still working there today. And matter, I keep really close contact with them. Actually, they did a show in Brooklyn in my neighborhood like three years ago for Rihanna. And uh, it's funny, they called me just like, hey, are you near this address? Because they know I live in Brooklyn. So I did their site survey for them, and then I helped load in all their lights and stuff. Nice. It was nice to be a part of it. It was great to see them. And they also have a company or they have a location in Puerto Rico, too. So when we did Hamilton, Puerto Rico, 
we needed to spec a lot of like outside lighting for the building because there was such a big high profile show. They wanted to like make it look really nice on the outside. So I gave them a call and I rented a bunch of trusses and Lico's got custom gobos. And so if you look at all the pictures from Hamilton, uh, Puerto Rico, you see all like the Hamilton gobos and all the lights outside. That's all stuff I rented for media stage because <laughs> I, I kind of spearheaded that whole thing, which is so, which was kind of funny because I was like, I got to kind of flex that, that side of my brain again, you know, like, that's because that's what I used to do for media stage. Like, all right, we, we want to put lights outside. We want to get templates. We want to do this and that. And they just said they just wanted to look nice outside. And they let me, gave me all the sort of creative freedom. Okay. So you got the job at Broward Performing Arts Center. Right. The assistant electrician job. Yes, that's correct. It was really tough for me to leave media stage because I felt like I was really flourishing in my career there. Uh, but the pay was not as good as what they were offering at the Broward Center to be the assistant electrician. As a matter of fact, at that moment, that was probably the second highest paying job in my entire local. Wow. The first being the head electrician, only because like the head electrician will be there for like all the wardrobe calls, like all day and all night at the theater. But it was still a pretty good job. But then when I worked there, I kind of hated it, actually. I mean, I liked it. I liked the people I worked with. But to me, it seemed like the biggest dead end job I could have possibly have gotten. Because when I, when I had taken the job, the woman who convinced me, uh, I told her what I was currently doing and, and programming moving lights and doing this. She's like, oh, that's great. We were thinking about buying some moving lights. And, and can, you could probably help us with that. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I would love to. But then we got slammed by two hurricanes, one being Katrina and the second one being Wilma. And they probably had like a million dollars worth of damage. So they never bought the moving lights or any lights at that point. I think actually we had just bought Source 4s. You know, we had uh, Lee Color Train Lico's up until that point. So we just had like a little bit of Source 4s and that was pretty much it. So my job there essentially was basically being like a glorified babysitter. So I just ran the crews. You know what I mean? I just, the like touring shows would come in. I would just, you know, divvy up the crews. They're like, all right, you go with this guy, you go with that guy. And I would just kind of hang back. And that was pretty much it, you know? So I only really did it for about like a little over a year because I just couldn't see myself doing that anymore. I wasn't getting my hands on technology anymore. I was just like a glorified babysitter at that point. It seemed like the type of job that you would want at the end of your career, not at the beginning of your career. So then that's when I moved to New York. About a year after working there, I was like, you know, now's the time to move. I felt like I had gone as high as I could possibly go in South Florida. And I was ready to make the move. And I didn't know anybody in New York. I didn't wasn't moving to a job. I didn't know what I was going to do. I even considered I was still young. I was 24 years old when I moved to New York. So I was considering even going back to school. I said, maybe I'll just go to school for lighting design and do it, you know, take it a little more seriously. But then as soon as I got here, uh, my wife had gotten pregnant and we had our first child and we had our second child directly after that. And what year was that? Uh, 2006 and 2007. And at that point, I was just thinking of how I'm going to make money at that point. Oddly enough, actually, the first day I came off the plane, before I even found a place to live, I flew up here to find us a place to live for my wife and I. And I wanted to establish some sort of, um, you know, some work. So I went straight to the union hall. I was walking down 46th Street and I saw the Richard Rogers Theater is a bunch of guys like hanging outside. And I said, hey, do you guys know where the Union Hall is? Even though I knew exactly where the Union Hall is because I'd, you know, looked it up. And I, <laughs> yeah. But I just wanted to make a little chit chat with guys who are obviously stagehands. And one of them was Joey DiPaolo. 
And Joey DePaulo is like, oh, you're in, so you're a stagehand too? Like, you should come by the, you know, you should come by my theater. I'll introduce you to my head electrician, who at the time was Manny Becker. He was the head electrician at the Brooks for many years. And so I went to talk to Manny, and turns out he's actually from my local in South Florida. Uh-huh. So, so he asked for a resume. I gave him a resume. And he called me for his next load-in. And that was it. And that's how I got into working in Broadway, which I never thought I was going to. He called me. <laughs> his next load-in was like two months later. So at that point, I mean, I'd had in my resume all over the city. I had, I got a job working at Irving Plaza as an LD. So I was working there, not full-time, but the LD there at the time was working at Crowbar. So he was pretty much never there. So it was like almost working there full-time with like, you know, rotating a couple other LDs. But they had shows every single night and bands that I've always wanted to see. So that's fun. I was happy to be programming for live music again because, you know, that's how I got started into it. And I had, at that point, I hadn't done it in so long working at the Broward Center, working for media stage, um, doing corporate events and stuff like that. And they had a nice lighting rig too. Oh man. Uh, at the time, Irving Plaza in 2006, they had eight um, DL3000s. They had a bunch of like techno beams and uh, DL2500 spots. It was so much fun working there. Some of my best friends I made actually while I was working there. Um, the, from bands that played there, like my best friend in the world I met. He was opening up for um, Ozo Motley with his Latin band called Radio Mundial. Um, and it turns out he's from Miami too. I said, where do you live? I said, I just moved here. Like I literally started working at Irving Plaza two weeks after moving here. Nice. And I said, I just moved here too. And then he turns out he lived in Williamsburg too. So we just became friends and we played in bands together and I started lighting his band. That's really cool. Yeah. It was kind of funny though. And uh, the first time Manny called me to load in a show, which was like a few months later, I guess it was August now. But it was so funny because he called me and I was debating whether I should take it. Like, oh my God, I got a call to work at a Broadway theater. Like I never thought this would happen. I didn't, we didn't even think like... It wasn't even a goal of mine. I didn't think, because everything I always heard about Broadway, is like, oh, you know, it's all, you know, generational, you know, people have been working generation after generation, you'll never get in there. So I never even thought to try, really. At the same time, I had gotten an offer to go on tour with a band called the Genitorturers as their LD. Oh my oh. god, I feel like you're the only other person who I've ever met who knows who they are. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> So at this point, I know, right? So I was like, ooh, that sounds like a lot of fun, but it also can be the end of my marriage. Because <laughs> who knows what's going to go. Well, because of how long you're going to be out? That and, you know, it's a sex band. Well, but I mean, that's their shtick. You know, like if you go if you go out with Guar, it doesn't mean you're going to like start eating machines on your off hours. That's true. But there are going to be a lot of beautiful women around. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I was still fairly newly married at the time. And uh, there would be a lot of temptation. So I decided to take the easy route and see what happened with the whole Broadway thing. <laughs> uh, and it turned out to work out. So then what? Turns out, because not only was Manny the head electrician at the Brooks, but he was also a production electrician too. So, And he was um, just kind of like getting out of the game. He just took the head's job to do less production uh, electrician work because he worked with Brian Lynch, the technical director. So the last show that Manny was doing as a production electrician was uh, White Christmas, Irving Berlin's White Christmas. So Manny actually offered me the, the job on that um, the following year, from 2007, to go out of town to Toronto with it. So that's what I did. So I took uh, a contract. I was the assistant electrician then, but I was running the lighting console because he knew I was really proficient with the lighting console. 
But the guy that he made the head electrician ran the follow spot because he had already done it the previous year. So he was like, you know, being kind of like more loyal to his somebody mm-hmm. that had already done it. But he was a little inexperienced. Well, I have to say, what I I have found is that Broadway follow spot operators are able to do things that you wouldn't even think to ask a spot operator to do. Like, so many of them are so good at it, it's almost unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've been doing it so long. I mean, it's like, when you run a follow spot for so many years, you become almost like an artist. Like, paint with very fine, very fine brush strokes, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, And they know what to do. You don't have to really... Beyond them, yeah. So you're doing the show. You're running the board. You have the the head who's running the follow spot. Yeah, that was my first like Broadway show. It wasn't on Broadway, but it was an out-of-town Broadway sit. So the next year, they brought it to Broadway. So it was the first year that it was at the, the Marquee Theater. So Manny gave me an option. I could stay on the console and do it out-of-town again or do it in New York and move to the follow spot. Which So that's what I did. I moved to the follow spot because I had... Um, two babies now. Your family's in New York. <laughs> exactly. Like when I did the Toronto one the year before, I had uh, just one child and he was a baby. And my wife came and brought the baby. And that's actually when I found out she was pregnant with the second one. So uh, by the by the next year, I had two babies and there was just no way I could do it out of town. So I took a little demotion and went to follow spot. You know, it was a nice run. It was just great to do a show on Broadway. I felt like I'd really made it at that point. Like I just... You know, even though it's a temporary run, it wasn't open-ended. I was like, yes. And Manny was hiring me, you know, to, for all his load-ins and load-outs at his theater at that point. And the next show at Manny's theater was Grease. And Jimmy Fedigan was the production electrician, actually. So that's when I got to meet Jimmy. And uh, I remember Manny, like, coming up to me in a panic, like, in the, mid- in the middle of the load-ins. Like, he's like, can you just please do White Christmas for me one more time this year before Jimmy Fedigan steals you away? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so... <laughs> Which is funny because Jimmy started hiring me in the shop right after that. You know, he had me like prep the first National Jersey Boys and we did Dirty Dancing in the shop. And uh, I did one more year of White Christmas for Manny, which was they did brought it back to the marquee in 2008. And no, that'd be 2009. And then the next year, oddly enough, they decided to cancel White Christmas and they, um, White Christmas Company decided that they were going to sell their snow machines to Elf. So Jimmy Fedigan had uh, had emailed um, Manny about the snow machines. At this point, I had like I was like my I was in charge of the snow machines, making sure that they were cleaned and like like that. They were kind of my babies and everything. So then I emailed Jimmy Fedigan like, "So I heard you want these snow machines. Like, hey, you got a job on that Elf show?" <laughs> <laughs> And at this point, you know, I, I'm still like waiting to actually have like a job on an open ended show because, you know, at this point, I've been living in New York three years, like still I'm just kind of like subbing on shows. And, and I was always writing like all the production illustrations, like Jimmy Fedigan, Jimmy Maloney, every like three months, I'd write them an email. Like, so if you have any shop work, or if you have any jobs coming up, so, you know, I'm available. You know, I was just very diligent about letting them know my availability. And uh, Jimmy Fedigan eventually said like, hey, actually, I do. I might have a job for you on this Elf show. So he gave me a job on Elf. And after that, boom, I he started hiring me, you know, fairly regularly after that. And that became a quite fruitful relationship. Definitely. Absolutely. Jimmy's the best. You know, I'd, you know, I'd consider him a, a good friend of mine, actually. Like we've really developed a pretty close relationship, especially after doing Hamilton, because we spent so much time like out of town together and in tech together, just sitting at a tech table so many different cities and 
you know, I, he's, I consider him a very like close friend and, and confidant, you know, at this point. So when did you get involved with Hamilton? How early in the process? Fairly early. I mean, we didn't do it at the public, obviously, but as soon as he moved to Broadway. So let's talk about that. Okay. You're definitely the first person I've spoken to on the show who has actually done the transfer of a show from Off-Broadway to On-Broadway, and then from On-Broadway to tour, and then also back into another sit-down. Yes. So I would like to know sort of what you had to gather information-wise from the Off-Broadway production, how that helped inform what you needed to do on Broadway, and then what you had to do to take that thing that was going to sit essentially at this point forever, and then translate it into a form that could be picked up and put down in any, you know, Ace Thias Theater in the country. Oh, well, it was certainly challenging. I will definitely tell you that. Um, so I guess we'll just start up from Off-Broadway to on, On-Broadway. Yeah. You've seen Hamilton. There's a lot of lights, a lot of conventionals, especially. They they had I think six full ninety six racks or six or seven there was a yeah there was no dimmer doubling so that was going to be a challenge um, because we did not have that much space on the dimmer jump at the Rogers so every obviously you know we dimmer doubled everything everything and anything you possibly could uh, so that being said with all the dimmer doubling I managed to squeeze it into um, three ninety sixes. At the at the Richard Rogers Theater, I had to think for a second. <laughs> I'm going back now. There's done so many productions with Hamilton since then, and we just loaded out Chicago, which actually had 396s and a 48. Because believe it or not, it's the, it's exactly the same as the New York show, but they added like another 60 lights to it or something like that. So we had to add another 48 rack, and we maxed yeah. out the power in that venue. But from off Broadway to Broadway, um, there was also a lot of other things too. A lot of like the fixture changed, which. I don't know if I was really aware of it at the time, but it would definitely prove to be challenging. You know, at the public, they use VL 2500s. And then moving to Broadway, I'm not exactly sure why it was, but they switched to Mike Viper performances. And there, for some reason, there didn't seem to be any documentation about which way the lights were hanging at the public at the time. Um, so we just kind of took a guess. Not a guess, but we just hung them a certain way. So once we started teching the show and the way that... The fixtures were cloned. I think 2500 has two um, template wheels where the Viper only has one. So they actually went from having a certain amount of templates to less templates. So the transfer of the show files with the with the new fixtures was not going as well as we'd hoped. So every time we'd go to a queue, like lights were spinning off in different directions. And and I know, I know Ryan O'Gara and Howell and David Arch were all they were able to get there super early and work very diligently to like stay ahead of Tommy Kale, our director yeah. and uh, just, you know, like pre light, you know, way ahead of them. So, you know, they don't go to a queue and, you know, have things pointing in the house and everything. It was, um, it was a hard transfer as far as show files is concerned for sure. So for the Broadway run at the Rogers, you developed an electrical system, you know, for power and data distribution that would work for a sit down production. Yes. Uh, how did that system change as you went to new places? And then how did that system change as you took the show on tour? Basically, we load shows in, in New York as an installation. Like we plan on this show running for years, whether you think it's going to be good or bad, but we are installing this show into the theater. Like we run our cable to, to like the, to the lighting grid and up and over and things are just sort of like permanently installed in sort of that manner, you know? And so a year after running on New York, 
they announced Hamilton Chicago. Hamilton Chicago essentially had the same exact, it's basically a carbon copy of Hamilton, New York. So lighting wise, it was pretty much exactly the same, except the lighting designers added a lot of lights front of house to light a lot of architecture, which wasn't really possible with the Rogers, just due to obstructions and, and, and what have you. Um, they also added a lot of side light as well. So basically I would say it was a carbon copy and just with like an extra 48 rack. And that is Chicago. So same thing, cables running to the grid, things are not meant to move at that point. And it's funny because while we were in Chicago and we had so much time in Chicago, we were, I was in Chicago for almost three months actually. And we were in, we had so much time during tech. And while we were in production in Chicago, that's when we started having the meetings for the tours, actually. So me and Jimmy and our production carpenter, Andrew Sullivan, and our production sound, Nick Borschik, production props, uh, Denise would all just go out to the lobby in the middle of tech and start, you know, talking about the tour and talking about what the producers were expecting of us. And that's when we found out that they want us, wanted us to move the show and basically two days. They wanted us to load in on a Monday morning and have a show Tuesday night, which we thought was absolutely crazy at the time because considering what we just did in New York and now Chicago, and we've been there for months just installing this and how big the show is. And you've seen the show. There's like 700 plus lights, including all the LEDs and, and everything. For almost any first national Broadway musical these days, that's a tall order. Absolutely. It's an incredibly tall order. So we're like, no, this can't be this can't there's just no way and uh we thought eventually they would sort of budge on it but no they weren't budging like months went by and like nope this is going to be the plan this is what we're going to do and um so we really started having to take it seriously so that's when and the designers were involved obviously too because they said all right well we can cut down the conventionals they cut a lot of conventionals out of the show they added more moving lights so the moving lights were covering all the ring lights so because it would be a nightmare to focus those every city uh ryan o'gara and, and how they did a great job of stripping down the lighting rings um quite substantially but yet really not sacrificing too much of the integrity of the design like if you were to look at the tours it doesn't look all that much different i mean you are lacking a lot of the punch from you know the million conventionals up there but it looks really good. It looks great. It's done. And it can be loaded in super quickly, um, which was what was being demanded of us at that point. So that was like, I had actually never laid out the show before, too. So I was a little nervous about that. Uh, but luckily, uh, we had some of the best head electricians in the business. You know, Jimmy Fedigan hired um, you know, Stephen Dydle's DVD and also um, Todd Davis as well. I mean, these guys have been touring for decades. So, you know, I got a lot of input from them. I said, you know, I'm just here to, you know, tailor fit this tour for you guys. Like you guys are going to be out there moving this every city. So whatever input you want from me, like whatever, or whatever input you have for me, but what you want and how you want this to move, like let's all work together to make sure this, this we can make this move quickly and efficiently. And that was super helpful. Like, and what we have now, it's, it, it moves pretty well. So what the way, the way they do it now, there's about an eight hour advance, which is key actually, because, um, in the advance, we load in all our cable, all the cables hanging in the air. Um, we do a lot of the under deck stuff and they, the carpenters will load in the, the show deck and the turntable. So I have like a lot of blooms underneath that, that lay with the, with the show deck. 
just so you can power all the LEDs that are lighting the, the walls and everything. And the front of the house is also hung on the advance as well. And we bring one rack. This is this is the best idea I had for the tour. And we only <laughs> it only took me like one or two stops to think of it. Now we bring our second rack, which also you see how our how we built our racks. Um, one dimmer rack. It's basically two ninety six dimmer ETC dimmer touring racks and two 96-way PDs. On top of rack one, which is the furthest downstage, has all our uh, octos and our networking. Uh, the two PDs in the center, one has a, a sound crossover rack, and also a, another one has a stage manager relay rack for a few lights. The furthest upstage uh, dimmer 96 rack um, has the motor control on it. So that is something we advance now. So that way, not only can we get all of rack two plugged in, but we can get all the motors plugged in while they're hanging in the air. So when all the show to show stuff comes in, we just roll the Tyler truss right underneath the motors, hook them up and they can fly right out. So we can get our entire electrics, well, all our electrics on. We have 10 of them within an hour and a half of loading in our show to show stuff, like nice. up that trend and everything. So that worked out pretty well. And so, and, and that counts as the first actual load in day where that happens, right? Exactly. Exactly. Their carpenters are so good about hanging the electrics uh, on point every single city that once we hang the electrics and turn everything on, we're probably close enough where you could have a, sh a passable show. You know what I mean? Like as far as all the presets are concerned, and like everything is hung exactly where it was. You're not rebuilding every preset. You're just updating it. You know, it's you're just you're just giving it the touch it needs. Yes, a little finesse for sure. I've done that update a couple times. It takes a while. It takes a lot. There's so many. So a lot of times, like especially I've done a few of the advances, we'll do eight hours on Sunday and we'll come in like the show to show stuff will come in or like around one or two the following day. That starts loading in. I'd say about 7 p.m. that night, we start updating presets. And then all day, Tuesday, we're basically probably updating from morning up until like 5 p.m. or dinner. I'm sure they've probably gotten quicker about it by then because they've done it so many times, but uh, and like certain other things we've talked about, that's something else people should, you know, hear and understand that, you know, that there's there's no shortcut for some of this. No, there isn't. That if you want the show to look the same in every location, there's a lot of work that that goes into it every time it moves. Absolutely. And there's no way around it. There's no way to speed it up yeah. if you want it to be perfect. I don't know if you talked about this with David Arch, but I mean, David Arch really designed a really lovely little um, system with moving light assistant that, you know, so the so moving light assistant will talk with the lighting console via OSC and they'll trigger each other. So you can use the, the lighting console to trigger OSC to bring up the next preset and bring up all the lights in the preset, and hit next and then like a global update button. And it's just so well done and it makes it makes it go by fairly quickly. But that being said, there's still, I don't know how many presets, hundreds for sure. Even with this amazing system that David Arch created to update all the presets, it's still that time consuming because the design is really that complicated and intricate and you want it to look really good. Then it moves quickly, efficiently. It's, it's you know, I have so much respect for those guys that move that show uh, every week. Now we have three tours. Uh, well, the San Francisco, I don't know if you heard, but they're, since COVID, they were supposed to only run till August anyway, but now obviously they're, we're going to actually, we're devising a plan to safely load it out because it will eventually tour whenever it's back. So there will be three tours in the U.S. Was that intended to be a tour whenever it moved? Yes, it was. Okay. So it, it was, was built as a tour. It was built as a tour for sure. Unlike Puerto Rico. Now that is, 
Puerto Rico in itself is definitely an interesting story. We definitely but, need to talk about Hamilton, Puerto Rico. Yeah. Because, I mean, when I spoke to David, that hadn't happened yet. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, man, we had so much fun out there. Especially David. Oh, man, David's my buddy. He has so much fun when we go out of town. <laughs> okay, so Hamilton, Puerto Rico. This will tie in nicely with all the talking about the other companies as well. So I built Hamilton, Puerto Rico as an installation, just as Broadway, just as Chicago. We're, we're only going to one theater, and that is it. Uh, this is a theater that we've invested a lot of time and energy into. And, you know, obviously they invested a lot of money. Um, it was about three weeks after the hurricane that, you know, I got the call from Jimmy that they wanted to do a site survey down in Puerto Rico. It was all like super hush hush. And I was like, what? Like we weren't allowed to talk about it and we're posting about social media about it. But, um, this, you know, the, the island was still devastated. I'm pretty sure the airport was still closed. So they, so Lin-Manuel actually flew us down on a private jet to do a site survey three weeks after the hurricane because he was so anxious to see if it was even possible to put on Hamilton there. So he sent us, me, um, Jimmy, Production Sound, Nick Borschick, and Andrew Sullivan, Production Carpenter, just to survey, survey the, the theater and see if it was possible. If it was possible, he wanted to know what it took to make it possible so he can make an announcement right away to sort of, you know, in hopes of lifting everyone's spirits on the island. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we went down there, you know, the, the island was still devastated, you know, it was flying over. We could still see like half the island it was blue tents. It was really, really heartbreaking. There was no electricity. Uh, got to the theater. There was a loads of damage. Well, I want to say loads of damage. You know, I live from Miami. I've seen quite a bit of hurricane damage, but it was enough. There's part of the ceiling was collapsed. Um, but more importantly, they've never had a Broadway show. This is the, the Teatro de at Universidad de Puerto Rico. It's a theater in the, on the campus. Yeah. So they've never had anything like this. And, you know, sussing out power and, like, where we're going to find that from, they didn't really have enough. Not to mention that the island never even really got their power up and running. Uh, so we brought, like, a giant UPS. I mean, when I say giant UPS, we have one the size of a semi-truck. Like, a guy that from Cat Power actually, like, lived in while he was there. Which was great because not only did it give us a backup, a battery backup, but it also uh, was a power conditioner. So not a generator. Not yet. A UPS power conditioner. Right, because they because the theater actually had its own generator. So this was going to go in line between the generator and uh, and the power source. I see. Which was great because it stabilized the power because there were so many like spikes because this power system there was crazy. I mean, it probably was probably crazy even before the hurricane. Um, but afterwards, it was a nightmare. I mean, you would just be in a restaurant. You would see the lights flicker. I mean, there's drops and spikes, and it just was not, it wasn't uh, reliable. So after we did the site survey, Lane well was super happy, made the announcement, and then uh, we had to make, you know, I personally made two or three more site surveys before we loaded in that December. And I know the production carpenter, Andrew Sullivan, he was sort of leading that whole thing he was going down like every weekend just to check the progress and stuff i mean the whole place was under scaffolding and they had to repair the roof and they were they, were, they had to put a lot of work into that theater to make it you know ready for a broadway show yeah so come december remember it was a uh, december 9th was the day or december 10th we loaded in december 9th being my birthday <laughs> huh. which, which is that's a whole nother story altogether i'm not 
about to talk about the Miami Dolphins, but that was the day of the Miami Miracle. <laughs> <laughs> so I got tickets to stop in Miami because I wanted to see my friends and family first. And I had t- season tickets for the Dolphins. They were playing the Patriots that day. And uh, we had just enough time. I had So we got to Florida that day, that morning, and we went to go watch the Dolphin game. Oh, no, it was the night before. It was on my birthday, so I could hang out with my friends, my old colleagues from the Broward Center and everything. Yeah. So the Miami Miracle, I don't know if you saw that game, but that's the one where we beat the Patriots by this miracle where they were just like tossing the ball back and forth. It was like the last seconds of the game. And they scored a touchdown and won the game the last few seconds. It was like one of the greatest plays in football history ever. And we had just missed it because we just walked out of of the stadium because it was oh. two minutes. And that was, I was with my girlfriend at the time, uh, Jocelyn Smith. I was like, we got to make it to the we have to make it to the airport. We cannot be late because last time we, we had just gone to a game two months prior and it took us two hours to get out of the parking lot because the parking was a nightmare. Yeah. So I'm like, I can't be late because this there was no other flight. This is the last flight out of Fort Lauderdale going into Puerto Rico. And I, if I miss this, then I'm going to miss load-in. And I can't miss load-in because I'm the <laughs> one who's leading the load-in. <laughs> so I'm like, I can't take any chances. So we got into the car. And, you know, yes, to be fair, like a lot of crews, you know, it's like, oh, there's an emergency. Oh, the head can't be here. They'll try to get it going, but they can't <laughs> learn the systems you had developed to, like, make this I know. work. Exactly. It's like, there's no one else that can do this. Uh, and not, not even our head electrician for the show that was staying there for the run. He wasn't even in the shop with us, so he doesn't even know. So, like, uh, I couldn't be couldn't afford to be late. So, and as soon as we got to the car, we were playing it on DirecTV Now on our phones, and we saw it happen. We heard everyone, like, cheering. We're like, oh, my God, what happened? And we won. We couldn't believe it. And it's so funny because the, the guy, the running back that eventually ran into the into the end zone, he, like, threw the football into the stands. And where he threw the football is right where our seats were. Ah. He probably could have caught that football. It was, like, right there in the end zone. And then I got to the airport. We were there on time, thank God. And then I was there in the bathroom washing my hands, and a guy in a Miami Dolphins jersey comes in. And I was, I was like, oh, like, and I was still wearing mine. I was like, hey, pins up. He's like, yeah. And I was like, you stayed at the end of the game? He's like, yeah, of course. Like, of course I did. <laughs> like, oh, no. So like, you didn't, didn't? I was like, no, I left with two minutes to spare. So but we saw it on the, on the phone. It's like, oh, man. Definitely don't regret it. I know I made the right decision, but it was still cool. I could still, I still got to hear everybody cheer from the parking lot. You were kind of tailgating for a minute there. Yeah, exactly. So Hamilton, Puerto Rico was a whole new experience, I got to say. First of all, I, I got to say, the crew we had was amazing. They were fantastic. And um, our producers, I think they were kind of expecting the worst. Because um, our production carpenter, Andrew Sullivan, he had been down there within the Heights and had kind of a nightmare experience loading in there. But I think because it was such a high-profile show that the best of the best wanted to work on it. So because we were expecting the worst, they let us bring like 10 contract electricians. So it was oh, wow. me and Jimmy, and I brought Jocelyn Smith, who's you know one of the best electricians I've ever worked with. And everyone else is um, basically like a head electrician from another show. Alan Schuster was there, and we brought Michael Brown down there too. It was just like – Wow. And Randy Zabeck was there. and We had this like dream team of – you know, Broadway electricians. And on top of that, the local electricians were great. You know, I mean, I had like, like guys like, there was like the LD for Calle Trece. <laughs> you know, just like these like guys, I really knew their shit. I was, and they were just so eager to work and they were just a pleasure to w- deal with. And we loaded the show in quickly, efficiently. It was a great experience. It was, we were working just 
you know, a very easy schedule, working until five o'clock every day. You know, got to enjoy a little beach sunset and have like some mojitos on the beach. And it was just so nice and lovely. Two weeks, we we're just ready for cast on stage. And then we have this emergency meeting <laughs> with just the production people. Not even, not even like Ryan O'Gara, the lighting designers were, were involved, invited to this. It was like this emergency meeting we we're having during our Christmas party on the, eve of our last night there and that's when we all go into this hotel room and we were like conference calling with maggie and the producers and i heard whisperings about this <laughs> but it turns out there'd been you know there'd been like whisperings of like threats happening and so they made the decision to move the show at that point when we were all loaded in ready for cast on stage that would have been the next day they were about to release us for uh like I think it was about six or seven days to, for Christmas. We can go home for Christmas, see our families, and then come back and go back to work. But now, instead of having a nice like five or six days with my family during Christmas, it was like, all right, I'm going to have five or six days to figure out how I'm going to move this show, which I built specifically to go into this one theater, into a completely different theater, which I did not have that much information on because I was not included into the site survey. That happened like very secretively because they didn't know it was actually going to move. They didn't even think it was actually going to move, but yeah, it turns out we had to move. And thank God Andrew Sullivan took a lot of good pictures because I spent a lot of time just looking at his pictures and figuring out what they had in that theater and what, how I could use it. And that was basically my time for the holidays in 2018 was. Uh, so I developed a plan. Like, so it was a little complicated because, you know, at the, the original theater, we had a dimmer jump. It was a massive dimmer jump. It was 45 feet in the air, which allowed me to take all of our cables, run into the grid, and keep all, all our cable lengths super short because it would just land right on top of that 45-foot uh, off-the-ground jump. Yeah. Now we don't have a jump, so all our dimmers are going to be on the deck. So my cable lengths, were I thought were going to be short, but... By some miracle, we're just making it. But I had media stage actually on the line. I'm like, send me a gear list now. Everything you have in Puerto Rico. I may need like 25-foot <laughs> molts and DMX and like who knows. <laughs> like I'm still working this out. I might have to jumper everything. Yes, exactly. But thank God I didn't need it. They just made it. We, uh, we didn't take everything to the grid. They had just enough pipes, just enough pipes, uh, system pipes in the theater if I like did a lot of like combining and like we, I had, was able to get all the cable in the air and um, we still have enough for like scenery and you know, like the carpentry uses uh, system pipes for certain things, but they literally had just enough system pipes. Cause we have 10 electrics and they, they have, so, they had so few pipes there, especially where we needed them. Just, you know what I mean? It was, yeah. so we just made it happen. We had to do a lot of combining. It's like, all right, I'm going to have to combine like three boom, four boom cable and this electric and that electric. And if I do this and that, like uh, me and Andrew Sullivan, were doing a lot of uh, back and forth about how we were going to make this work during that time. And we figured it out. We did it. It was great. Like, we came back. We loaded the show out. And so then how long did you have to load into the second theater? Not much at all. Like we were working, we were planning I mean, we were working around the clock, so we were working every day, 8 in the morning till like, late, like, 10 or 11 p.m. at least. And so we, we started seeing that we were actually ahead of the game, and things were going smoothly. Um, and I think we started cutting back on hours a little bit, but, I mean, they had to cut some shows. We had less tech time. It was, like, uh, they, they did a lot of rearranging of the schedule. Yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, it went well. 
And so, you know, I know earlier you mentioned that you were also Leslie Odom Jr.'s sliding designer. Yeah. Did you know him before Hamilton, or did you, did you guys get connected through Hamilton? No, it's through Hamilton, actually. So tell me about working with him. Tell me about what you do with him. And then tell me about, like, what else you do with revolutionary lighting. Okay. Um, it's so funny because, like I said earlier in, in the show, that, you know, I got into this business lighting live music, and it really is my passion. It is what I love doing the most. Uh, so, last when the, it was the last day that Leslie Odom was in the show, which was also Lynn Manuel's last day in a lot of the original cast. I remember talking to him in the alley. Well, I think he might have been smoking a cigarette or something. And I said, hey, so what are you going to do after this? And he said that he was going to you know, do, per, pursue some live music. And I told him, that, hey, if he ever needs anybody to light him, uh, that's what I do. And um, he's like, all right, I'll keep you in mind. And... Um, some time went by. I think it was a couple of years when we we're actually loading in. Uh, it was for opening night in Hamilton, L.A. And I ran into him there. I said, hey, how you doing? He's like, oh, I got something big coming up. I'm going to hit you up. And next, the following week, he uh, asked me to design his show at the Kennedy Center. Wow. Yeah, it went really well. It was, um, it was so good to get back out there. And his music was, was all jazz. and was all. He has a new album out, right? He does have a new album out. It's called Mr. And this, his new album is actually all original music because before he was playing like a lot of jazz covers. And so this, I feel like is kind of like his first album, you know what I mean? Because he, yeah, so when I was talking, yeah, so this is a few years ago he, when I lit him at the Kennedy Center. And then the following month after that, he flew me out to LA to light his show at the uh, Disney concert hall downtown. And that went well, and then years went by, and just this past October, he calls me again, and he mentions that he's got a new album coming out, and I listened to the album and was just blown away. And uh, first, we did a showcase at a place called Subculture. It's in Soho in New York City. He was just showcasing new music. So I had like five songs, and the five songs I heard was just mind-blowing. It was just amazing fusion of jazz and R&B and pop and i just loved it and and i you know from what i was going through in my life at the time i was really relating to the lyrics and it just it just i just loved it that's uh, cool did the show yeah so his setup was completely different too because when i did a show at the kennedy center and the disney concert hall he was playing at the jazz band so now he's back with this new album new feel uh new style of music and now he has a dj a guy playing bass on the piano and him singing and it was just amazing it was a completely different feel uh, I, I brought my own lights I have, I have my own moving lights <laughs> brought in this tiny venue they wouldn't let me use haze but it's okay <laughs> it still looked good not as good as it would have been with haze but uh and then his album release was um shortly after that he did one in new york and one in la and that was last october and that's when we really got the flex. You know, I rented out. I basically had my entire lighting package out. We did it at the Bowery Ballroom, in which they have a pretty nice lighting package there already. But with all my stuff on the floor, it, it just looked great. And I had it looked um, and he was psyched. He felt like he said, this is like my first real show. He's like, Chris, we've been doing shows for years. But I feel like this is like my first real show. You know, because oh, this is the first time he like felt like a rock star. You know, and he looked like a rock star. It wasn't. He wasn't just like doing like jazz and like some Hamilton songs that people would like clap. Like people were going crazy in this audience. 
And uh, yeah, same thing in LA. We did it again in LA, and uh, it's such a great experience. That's awesome. Yeah, and he just went out. He was just he just launched his tour in March, and I was trying to uh, figure out how I was going to make it work. Um, I was in LA at the time already doing uh, setting up the latest company of Hamilton in LA, which moved from Chicago, and his tour was about to start there. But I couldn't really make all the rehearsals because I was voting in at the theater, um, and I had the I had to bow out at the last second. So he had found a, another lighting designer who was actually pretty good because I went to his show in L.A. But unfortunately, then COVID hit and they never had a second show. So there, the next show would have been in Vegas, but it got canceled. And then the rest of the tour got canceled. But I did have a long talk with Leslie that night. Um, and he was great. You know, I said, you you know, the guy you found was great. He's like, don't worry. You, you're always my first call. It's like, I know you couldn't do this one, but let's do, we'll get together on the next one. I imagine you're process to to do you know one of his productions one of his performances you know one is different from a lot of the other things that you've done but also uh, clearly must have changed since the first time at the kennedy center because the entire genre of music he was playing changed oh absolutely definitely like now it's going like full rock and roll theme at this point his music is so good it's some of it is just like this great fusion of jazz and just this R&B and there's a lot of hits, a lot of like drama to it. It's great. I mean, I brought a bunch of moving lights. I brought a bunch of LEDs. I even brought an Atomic 3000 strobe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, it looked really good. It felt great to do that again. Unfortunately, we're not going to have that much live, live music in the next uh, little bit. I mean, it might yeah, be a seriously. while before we have live music again. So my next, my next endeavor... Is probably to light more music videos, do more uh, studio stuff, actually. You had a major project happen during the lockdown. I want to hear all about I Walk With You. Yeah. So I Walk With You. That is, um, it's it's actually funny because it's one of my best friends, John Shepard. He's a, a really incredibly talented songwriter. I met him at Irving Plaza, like he was, who I was talking about earlier. Uh, his band Radio Mundial opened up for Oso Motley. Ready Mundial, I mean, they, they were huge. Carlos, Carlos Santana was covering one of his songs. And uh, they unfortunately broke up because they had a little dispute with their record company that wouldn't release their record. They wouldn't sell it to them. They wouldn't release it back to them. They just kind of they shelved it. And then that was basically the end of it, his band, which is really unfortunate. But he's still a really talented songwriter. He's one of my best friends in the world. And he had written a song. He's really good about writing songs for the times and obviously we what we were going through with george floyd and black lives matter movement we wrote a song for that and he, you know since i would say the last few years he's actually been doing a lot of filmmaking he bought a lot, a lot of camera gear he's been shooting movies and videos for like the wu-tang clan and a lot of hip-hop artists so then this happened and he wrote the song it's called i walk with you and um so he has a lot of gear and I have a lot of gear. I have a lot of lighting gear and, um, you know, and we were not working. So let's, we were saying, let's create some content. So we had actually already been creating a decent amount of content before the George Floyd incident. And at the, at the sound studio that I um, keep all my lighting gear, which is a chemistry creative in Bushwick, in Brooklyn. I'd like to hear a little bit about a little about this, like because you know this sort of small rental business, you know. Because I mean, I know that there are people who 
you know, either the, you know, there's a piece of gear that they want to own, they want to purchase so they can use it. You know, it's a piece of gear that they can't necessarily get from one of the major shops. But yes. if it's something that they want to purchase and then they want to let people know that they have it, like, how did you let people know that you have this gear, that this is gear that you can't necessarily get from someone else? Oh, well. Uh, give me a call. Let me know. Well, my friend that owns the AV company or in the, I mean, he knows I have it because I store it there. <laughs> so, no, well, there so, you go. Yeah. So I don't really advertise it. So, I mean, I didn't buy the gear with the intention of renting it out. I mean, I got it more just so I could do my own designing and I just had this thing. And I knew that I would rent it out and because I wanted to have it pay for itself again. But I didn't realize I would rent it out to the extent that I would, that I have been. So it has been an extra nice little source of income, uh, you know, when the time comes and having three children, it's like, I will take anything I can get at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what do you own? Um, I own some Mac 250 on tours, tiny little lights. I don't know if you, did you see any of the other videos I had released recently? I have not, no. I'll, I'll send it to you after this. I also own Atomic 3000 strobe, some color blasts, smoke machine. That's pretty much it. It's a tiny little package. Mostly, it's mostly just for concert stuff. Like, I just want to light, you know, some live music. It seems like a good little package because, I mean, it, like, that is stuff that you can't really get anymore. I like, know. some of the shops used to have on tours, you can't get them anymore. On tours are great. Yeah. The optics are amazing. The last few that PRG had, I had purchased myself. Uh, but, you know, that's funny because that's what I used for Leslie Odom's uh, Bowery show, but I yeah. couldn't get that in LA. So, PRG, the sales rep out there, gave me some Robies, the, Ro- the Roby points which are actually really good. The optics are incredible in those things. And they're so bright. You know, it's like as bright as a Sharpie. Those points get as bright as a Sharpie and it's not a beam projector type of uh, moving head. It's just a, and then, and the nice thing about it is they move fast. It's like my Mac two fifties. I was trying to pro- program some sort of like fast, uh, fly outs for one of Leslie's songs. And it just, I couldn't get it to go fast enough as I wanted, but I was able to do it with the points in LA, which is great. The reason I even bought the app, the on tours is because when I worked at Irving Plaza in 2006, every band, you know, like, like light, lights, like LDs have like, they have like fads, like things are in fashion as far as like lighting is concerned. Like things are become fashionable. Like every band that came in had their own little package of on tours. And I was shocked about, uh, how bright the optics were. And since we had that rig of like, you know, VL 3000s, those Mac 250s could like be just as bright as those VL3000s, which just blows my mind, you know, for that particular venue. If you were to put them, like, side by side up in a truss for 50 feet in the air, that would they would not be the case. But for using them as floor lights, just shooting out, like, towards the audience, I mean, the optics are insane. Yeah, because you, you're not getting any of the real benefits of a VL3000 there. You know, like, the real benefits are it has this amazing, perfect-looking field, it has an amazing dimmer, it has great color mix, and, totally. you know, it has this huge zoom range, and but like you don't need most of that for just a floor light that's up in the air. Exactly. Well, that's the thing. That's why the Ontours is so good as a floor light because it doesn't have any of that shit. It doesn't have a zoom. It doesn't have color mixing. Like you basically, you know, that's more eye candy. I think more beams, more atmosphere. Yeah. You know. And they're a hell of a lot faster than three thousands. I'll say that. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great if they had a zoom though. But then they wouldn't be that tiny little inexpensive. I know. <laughs> Because, like, I mean, the way I used them for one of my last videos, I, I hung them in the air, and it was like, oh, we're so limited with these things. But they get the job done, you know, especially for a low ceiling in a, in a studio. So where can people see what you did for I Walk With You or some of the other video stuff you've done? Oh, they can, uh, at the moment, they could see it probably on my Instagram at uh, Revolutionary Lighting NYC. 
is the handle. We'll include a link to that. Okay. Uh, I shouldn't make a website, though. I know. I've, I've got a lot of videos, like music videos I've done over the years. I should really consolidate them all in one, one space. And what about other stuff? Is it other stuff? Well, I mean, like, if people want to learn more about Hamilton, where should they go? <laughs> <laughs> well, that same Instagram. Well, it's funny because I created a, I have a second Instagram account. So that's what the revolutionary lighting one has become more of my public one, uh, which oddly enough, I started just to kind of chronicle everything I was doing on Hamilton. But then it kind of disappeared for a few years. I had paused it for a minute and then it disappeared and i thought instagram deleted it so i thought it was gone so i made a new one and the new one has all my kids on it and everything so then my kids are at an age now like they have friends on instagram so i don't want you know i made that private yeah so then in that one the original one i made popped up out of nowhere which the years like three years later so now i just been using that as more of a public thing where i'm trying to make that just like specifically or hamilton light and design type of uh, page, but it, it could probably use a little more curating. Right before the big launch of the Hamilton movie, I, I was uh, posting a lot of photos from a lot of different marquees from around the country that I've done, like Seattle and Portland and Salt Lake City and Puerto Rico and LA, San Francisco. One of the thing, one of my projects I'm going to do this summer is get a website up and sort of consolidate everything there. I look forward to seeing that. Thank you. Do you have any other th- any anything else you want to talk about? Any other things you want to hit? Uh, anything else you want to promo? Or any thoughts you have as we're, you know, as a lot of us are fearful and scared for the future? Yeah. I'd say don't be scared. We'll get through this. There is a lot of things to be worried about as far as our leadership is concerned, but I think American people are resilient people, and I think uh, we'll definitely come back from this. Uh, as far as things that I would like to promo, yeah, I have a lot of big ideas this summer, a lot of big things happening. So one of my big goals is to get the website up. And All right. I usually do my best in times of crisis. This has sort of been a reoccurring uh, theme for me. You know, as you can see, um, I feel like there's been a lot of situations where I've had my back up against the wall, like whether I'm having another child and, you know, I didn't really touch on this but i didn't really get an offer on like an open-ended broadway show until 2012 i think which was like for chaplin like six years later so this time i was just struggling to subbing and taking any work i could possibly get so this really isn't nothing new to me so i think now is a good time people could look at it two ways people could look at it as a crisis and or people could look at it as an opportunity and i think it's definitely it's healthy to look at it both ways, really, but it could be a great opportunity for a lot of people, a lot of, you know, an opportunity to, to bring awareness to certain things. Like, for instance, what's happening now for uh, civil rights and Black Lives Matter is like unprecedented. Like, we're, I think we're making some real progress and we definitely have a lot of way to go. But, you know, I think things are happening. Things are good. Things are happening. There's a lot to be worried about, but good things are happening. And. I would recommend everyone, if they can, just jump in, chip in, just care about each other, hold your loved ones close, be there for each other, and we're all going to get through this. And I'm excited about it because I feel like I want to be there on the front lines. I want to be there fighting for all these things that need fighting for. You know what I mean? Anything I can do, anything I can do to help, anything I can lend, anything, whether it be like writing a song or, you know, lending some lights to some people that have creative ideas that will create some sort of creative expression you know shining a light that's what we do you you and me and 
and everyone else that works does what we do. We shine lights, things that need to be accentuated, let's say. And uh, now's the time for us to shine, right? Now's the time for us to help each other and be there for each other. That's true. Just got to be positive. You just got to be positive. Okay. I think we can end with that. We get, you just got to be positive. Yeah, I think so. Thanks very much, Chris. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, it's been wonderful talking to you and wonderful catching up with you, Jason. Likewise. I miss you, buddy. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. Use the contact form there to let us know what you think. And you can also check out all of our previous episodes there. We're on Instagram at Podcasting Light. We tweet at Podcasting Light. And we're on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for listening. Have a great show.